Hi everyone, this is Tyler Martin, the host of the Friction Factor Fitness Podcast, the podcast that is dedicated to teaching busy people how to develop lifelong fitness habits and fit sustainable diet and exercise into their life. In today's podcast, I'm going to be trying something new. In my first seven episodes, I focused on sharing some of my basic ideas about fitness, specifically about how busy people can motivate themselves, and I also provided some podcasts with diet and exercise specific advice. But today, um, I'm going to be giving some commentary on an article published last month by the American Council on Exercise by Dr. Erin, I think it's Nitska, and hopefully I'm pronouncing her name right. The article is called Five Ways to Ditch Diet Culture. The, uh, the article gives some basic ideas about what diet culture is, and she debunks some of the common health and fitness myths that she believes stem from diet culture. Now, I chose to comment on Dr. Nitschke's article because I think her article exemplifies the fact that the fitness world, even the well-credentialed fitness experts and academics, are failing to address the essential problem with this whole phenomena of diet culture. You may have heard or may never have heard of diet culture at all, but I guarantee you know exactly what it is um, and you'll recognize it once you've heard a little bit of an explanation. Dr. Nitschke's, I think, correct definition of diet culture is, and I'm just going to read this, the socially prevalent worship of thinness and the belief that body size is the measure of health, beauty, or morality. Now, I paraphrase that a little bit, um, but her explanation here, um, I think, should get the point across. So, basically, diet culture is the popular set of ideas that drives a lot of people to praise, at least in Western culture, certain body types, and it's a source of major social pressure, pressure that a lot of people really feel to push themselves to achieve these idealized types of physiques. So diet culture is a hot button issue in fitness right now with many people attacking it for its negative consequences. You probably see and maybe feel some of these consequences in your own life. And I think many of the current criticisms of diet culture really are valid but none of them get at the heart of the issue, at least none that I've heard yet. So if you feel the negative impact of diet culture, like so many people do, and if you feel the social pressure to live up to some idealized standard of fitness or beauty, then you should care about this debate because getting the argument against diet culture right can help make your life better. By just arming yourself with the right ideas, you really can learn to remove the negative influence of diet culture in your life, which ultimately is going to be a good thing. Dr. Nitschke's article does a good job of defining what diet culture is, but then it attempts to, I would say, loosely associate diet culture with the prevalence of several common myths fitness myths, such as that eating bread is unhealthy or that weight loss equals health. And the article 
jumps straight really into debunking several of the pseudoscience myths, but it never really makes clear why pseudoscience fitness advice is the essential problem to begin with. Um, you know, the essential problem created by diet culture or how debunking these these fitness myths or this, this bad fitness advice is really going to help eliminate the problems caused by diet culture. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I see the general benefit of debunking pseudoscience myths about fitness, but I don't see how that specifically helps break down the influence of diet culture. In my mind, these are two completely separate issues. Both issues need attention for sure, and I, I don't think that they're, I just don't think that they're related enough that debunking a few popular pseudoscience beliefs can really have a meaningful impact on reducing the force of diet culture, you know, in in our culture. Now, I do want to say that jumping into some or let me back up. I want to say before jumping into specific commentary on the article, um, I just want to point out at the beginning that this is a really short article, uh, and I'll put the link to it in the show notes. And I realized that the intention of the article was probably just to be a quick, you know, less than five minute read with a couple hard hitting takeaways. Um, it, it's not, it was not meant to be a dissertation on diet culture. And I, I totally get that. So it might seem a little unfair of me to, to pour on a bunch of criticism uh, for this really short article, but I'm really doing it for a bigger reason. I don't have an ax to grind against this author don't know this person or, or the outlet that published the article. I singled it out really to make a bigger point that the public conversation about diet culture as a phenomena is really not pointed in the right direction. So the, the debate ultimately I don't think is helping people in a meaningful way. So hopefully what I have to say in the podcast can just help contribute to redirecting this whole larger conversation. Let's jump into the content of the article. At the beginning, Dr. Nitschke defines diet culture, as I said before, as the socially prevalent worship of thinness and this belief that body size is some kind of a measure of beauty or morality. She makes the point that this is a very influential type of ideology and that this is problematic because it sets people up to chase these socially defined ideal bodies and people just in most cases aren't going to be likely to achieve those. In other words, diet culture is an ideology that prescribes a set of values to people, just like a religion or a political ideology. It says, we think X is good. You should care about X more than Y. Now, I agree with this. Diet culture primarily is an ideology. Here's my problem. If we're defining diet culture as an ideology, as a set of beliefs about what a good or beautiful body is supposed to be, what on earth does that ideology have to do with popular misunderstandings about eating bread or sugar? Yes, we should debunk pseudoscience claims about health and fitness, but I don't see any reason to believe that diet culture causes these things to happen. 
I mean, what really is pseudoscience? Pseudoscience is just a sloppy method of reasoning, which leads to bad conclusions. Incorrect conclusions is probably a better thing to say. So, for example, let's say there's a guy named Bob. Bob eats a lot of bread every day, and he's become overweight. So it would be pseudoscience to say, therefore, eating bread is the cause of Bob's weight gain. This is an example of sloppy reasoning. A good scientist would ask, are we sure it's the bread that's responsible for the weight gain? Shouldn't we test this theory? We could have Bob eat other foods in the same quantities so we can be sure that it's specifically the bread causing the weight gain and not something else. Now, of course, if you did this experiment, it would show that it's the number of calories Bob has been eating that caused his weight gain, not any specific type of food. It, it wasn't the bread specifically that created the issue. So, okay, this illustrates the gist of how pseudoscience happens, and, and obviously you can see what's wrong with it. it. It leads to wrong conclusions. Unfortunately, many of these poorly reasoned conclusions, these unscientific conclusions about health and fitness issues are widely believed and they're accepted in a lot of cases as good, helpful advice. This is a problem, but what's the relationship between this problem and the more ideological issues raised by diet culture, which are really more about promoting a particular ideal about what kind of body people should judge is morally good or aesthetically pleasing or admirable. I, I just don't see it. I, I don't think that there's much of a connection here. I don't want to over-intellectualize the issue, but pseudoscience myths are mostly a problem for science to tackle. I think that's pretty clear. As an ideology, diet culture is really more of a topic for philosophy because it, it's trying to prescribe to people what is good, what is moral, what is beautiful. Now, science may be able to help, I think it does help, set some of the basic guardrails, you could say, for thinking about some of these issues. But ultimately, bad ideology, diet culture, can only be defeated by a better ideology, some positive type of fitness philosophy that's going to be more helpful to people. So what are the real issues with diet culture, and how should we be thinking about them? First and foremost, I think the main issues with diet culture relate to people's values. Nitschke rightly points out that this worship of thinness and body size is influential, and it's a problem because it tends to set people up for disappointment and failure. She goes on to say in the article that this striving to attain the ideal body and not accepting ourselves as we are, as enough, is a major cause of frustration for people. I think this is absolutely true. Um, just think about it. Think about all the cultural pressure encouraging people to praise and to aspire to certain body types, especially through social media now. The amount of pressure this puts on people to behave a certain way or to look a certain way is real. But I think we need to unpack diet culture a little bit more. 
I think it's true that the dominant cultural trend, at least in the Western world, is to idolize a very particular human form, which for men is a large, muscular upper body and a thin waistline, and for women, a very lean, thin figure with an hourglass shape. This is what we see in the movies, on social media, on TV. You could say that by consensus, these are the socially defined standards of health, fitness, beauty, etc. I do think that diet culture amplifies these standards. It actively promotes them and probably pushes them to further and further extremes. And it doesn't just promote worshiping these idealized body types, it encourages people to use them as their personal standard for setting health and fitness goals. So to me, this starts to get at the real problem. Diet culture creates, I guess what you can say, it, it attempts to dictate a standard for setting fitness goals. Nitschke does point out that it can be negative to rely on social standards to be your own standard for health and fitness. However, I think there's another troubling trend developing more recently in the culture, somewhat in response to diet culture. And this is a trend that swing, swings way too far in the other direction. The, in my view, wrong response to diet culture is the notion that people should completely disassociate their ideas of health and fitness from body size, which I think is also very problematic. Should you set your own standard of health and fitness based on a consensus viewpoint from the culture or what the majority says is healthy or fit or beautiful? No, probably not. But that doesn't mean that health and fitness can mean whatever you want it to mean. You don't solve the problem of bad health and fitness standards by just throwing out the notion of having standards completely. Nitschke's article seems to give a few nods to this line of thinking. In a few places, it hints at the idea that maybe we should just toss out standards and let everyone write their own definition of what it means to be healthy and fit. At one point, she says that weight loss as a standalone metric doesn't necessarily relate to health and that body weight does not indicate health or disease. While that is technically true, I think that saying it, especially in such a short article, without providing tons of important context, really does more harm than good. It's objectively true, based on the science that we have today, that being significantly overweight which a large portion of the Western world is, at least in the United States, puts people at a statistically significant higher risk for disease and other health complications. There are real body mass thresholds that once they're crossed, do increase the risk that your quality of life will decline in a meaningful way at some point. So, while we can't say that weight loss is necessarily health progress, we can justifiably say that it is a reasonable insurance policy 
against health decline in the future for people who are overweight, again, which most Americans are. Of course, this does also work in the other direction. Weight loss beyond a certain threshold can also cause serious health risk, and she does mention that. Now, look, I have no doubt that uh, Dr. Nitschke is aware of everything I just said. My fear is that she's either in the camp or feels pressured by the camp of people who aren't very fond of experts being too loud about acknowledging links between body mass and health. It just doesn't fit with their approach, which seems to be the elimination of all standards, like we just talked about. This whole no standards approach is a wrong-headed ideological response to diet culture. The notion that we can defeat the ideology of diet culture with a new ideology bent on destroying all health and fitness standards I think has the potential to be at least as bad as diet culture itself, if not even worse. Um, the article hints at this bad idea another time when it discusses how, after all, majority opinions about the ideal human body have changed a lot over time. She points out that in the 1500s, it was viewed as desirable to be overweight because this indicated at the time, it indicated wealth, status, nobility, etc. Now, is this proof that all standards are subjective anyway? Therefore, standards are the problem, let's just toss them all out. No, and ironically, this type of conclusion sounds eerily similar to the way pseudoscience works, as we talked about just a few minutes ago. You have to look at historical examples in context. Yes, in pre-industrialized past, in the 1500s, being overweight was preferable, but it was preferable to the only alternative that in that era was, was an available option, which was to be a starving peasant with a life expectancy of, of less than 40. If you lived in that world, you also would probably prefer to be overweight than to starve to death. But the fact is that in the modern world, food is abundant for virtually everybody. The consensus viewpoint has understandably shifted over time. Without the constant threat of starvation, cultural opinion has shifted away from this idealization or idolization of being overweight. Why? Because science has taught us over centuries that people who find the middle ground between obesity and starvation tend to live longer and be healthier on the average. My point is that the fact that standards have changed over time doesn't mean that socially defined standards are completely base baseless. Sometimes there can be kernels of truth in the majority opinion, but it often takes work to find them. In the 1500s, the kernel of truth was that eating plentifully was preferable to starving. So the question is, are the ideas behind diet culture just rotten to the core, or 
is it built on some kernels of truth that are worth considering? I think there are some truths to be found beneath diet culture, but on the whole, the real problem with diet culture is accepting its standards blindly without any individual consideration. In the article, Nitzke makes a point that I really agree with, which is that ultimately people need to learn to accept where they currently are from a fitness and physique perspective, while also accepting that it's okay to want to make changes. She calls this body harmony, but to me, this term body harmony is too vague and a little too squishy or too woo-woo, as, as they say. What she calls body harmony, I call being objective. Being objective about what's realistic in the context of your life and what's really achievable given your lifestyle and available time and energy for things like diet and exercise. Achieving real body harmony starts with defining your own standards for fitness. This may sound subjective, but it's not or doesn't have to be. It's putting standards in place based on the context of your own life. It, it's objectively true that you're alive, that you desire certain outcomes, and if you select appropriate behaviors, behaviors not based on pseudoscience, you're likely to realize those outcomes. So to set your own standard, you have to think critically about the type of life you want, the type of life you want in the future. You've got to ask yourself questions. Are there outcomes you desire? Outcomes that changing your body through diet and exercise can help you get. Will realizing these outcomes enhance your life as a whole? Will the behaviors necessary to achieve your goals be compatible with your lifestyle? These are all the types of questions you have to answer to define a rational standard of physical fitness and health for your life. This process is very similar to what most people do when they select a new car to buy. You don't just buy the Ferrari because the cool car culture tells you that Ferraris are awesome. If you're a rational person, you think about the context of your lifestyle, including what you like, what you need, um, from, a fun from a functional perspective, what would be most helpful, these types of things. If you have five kids who all play sports, the ideal vehicle for you might actually be a minivan, not the Ferrari. And buying the minivan wouldn't be an arbitrary or subjective choice. It would be rational based on your situation. So you can set a standard for your ideal body and fitness level in the exact same way. When you do have a personalized vision of your ideal physique that reasonably fits into your lifestyle then you've probably set a reasonable standard for yourself. And then it's easy to feel good about setting your own personalized standard because you can see that this makes sense for me. It will enhance my life, which will ultimately make me happier. 
in my view, this is how real body harmony, to, to borrow the term, is achieved. The end of this article says that a valid, effective, and scientific approach to achieving optimal health is rooted in behavior change, patience, patience, and finding harmony between what the body needs and what you enjoy. I agree with this wholeheartedly, but unfortunately, I don't think the article really does much to help people with this. So what is the right answer? How do you defang the negative influence of diet culture on your life? I believe that real and sustainable success in health and fitness starts with setting your own rational standard. First, accept the basic scientific facts that there are certain biological requirements for attaining and maintaining general health, such as being at a healthy weight, healthy body, body fat percentage. And by general health, I mean being free from disease and doing what you can to reasonably reduce the risk of developing a chronic lifestyle-related disease like heart disease or type 2 diabetes. But it is still ultimately your choice, not diet cultures or the medical community's choice as to whether you'll choose to pursue and maintain even basic health and fitness levels. If you want to be generally healthy, not being overweight or, un or significantly underweight is a requirement, and so is regular exercise and eating a nutritious diet with appropriate portion sizes. These are the basic guardrails of health and fitness standards that science does help provide us with. But beyond this, it's really up to you to define your own standard. If you have other aspirations beyond just general health and fitness markers, maybe physique or performance aspirations, you have to figure out what's reasonable for you to aim for. If you want to feel good about your body, you need to feel good about the standard you've set for yourself, and you've got to be taking actions in relationship to that standard that are going to get you moving in the direction that you want to go. But setting these reasonable standards really does require real thinking. You, you can't just base it on arbitrary, arbitrary social consensus, uh, and you, you also can't base it on just you know personal whim, whatever, whatever you feel like setting it at. You have to think about the type of life that you're living now and the type of life that you want to be living in the future. And you've got to include you know, present hopes, dreams, plans, responsibilities. You have to ask, what is a rational goal for me based on the, my life and the available amount of time and energy I can reasonably spend on things like diet and exercise. Once you've thought that through and you, you have an answer, then you've got the beginnings of a good personal standard that is tailored to you. Now, where does the so-called body harmony come into the equation? What is the sign that you've achieved body harmony? The sign is the development of self-confidence. Confidence in the fact that you have a standard that makes sense 
and that your behavior is moving you towards your goal. The fact that you haven't yet, you know, in some cases, actualized your goal, reached your standard, shouldn't make you feel bad. Because when you know that you have a realistic goal and you see that you're taking the necessary steps every day to move closer to that goal, you will build confidence because there's there's a clear there will be a clear connection between what you want and what you're doing. And that's it. That's the secret to beating diet culture. You have to set your own rational standard. You have to base that standard on the basic principles of general health and fitness. And then set any additional goals based on the context of your individual life. Once you define your standard, you know, your goals, then you can select diet and exercise strategies and tactics to help you realize those goals. This is where you should really watch out for the pseudoscience. When you're selecting fitness strategies and tactics, uh, that's where you tend to run into more stuff like that. But that is a topic for another day. Thanks again for listening to the Friction Factor Fitness Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or found it valuable, please subscribe, please like, and please share with others who you think may find it helpful. Also, please check out my website, frictionfactorfitness.com, where you can access more content, access my free fitness calculator tool, and download a free teaser of the first three chapters of my new book, The Friction Factor, The Busy Person's Guide to Sustainable Diet and Exercise, which is launching in March of 2023 and is now available for pre-order. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for future episodes.